five minutes, five minutes. That's the minimum. And they're going to slip away. You're not going to have access to them after a month or two. An hour a day, seven days a week, you can keep them for multiple months. All right? But again, they're sort of slip away. Uh, 30 minutes a day. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You really do. They've done studies, and it doesn't matter what the practice is. After half an hour, <clears throat> there's a shift they find in everybody, and there's a real settling in. So if you do 30 minutes, you just got to the good stuff and walk away. So if you do 15 more minutes, it's going to be the best 15 minutes of the sit. And if you can make it an hour, it's twice as good as 45 minutes, at least in terms of the good stuff. But yeah, I know how hard it is to get in 45 minutes a day or an hour a day. But if you want to take the jhanas home, yeah, that's sort of what's required. Even if you don't manage to access them regularly at home, you may find that if you do a day long, they come right back. Maybe not the first sit or even the second sit, but later in the day they might come back. You go on another retreat. After you get settled in three or four days, yeah, they might start coming back. So there is the potential to take them out of here. And it's basically based on how well you know them and how good your practice wants to go out of here. I know I have two questions about that. So if I were on a retreat that wasn't addressing the jhanas, could I bring them there? Yeah. Well, I brought them on a lot of retreats where they weren't addressing the jhanas. And sometimes I talked about it. Your best bet is... If you're doing jhanas on a retreat where they're not talking about the jhanas and you go to an interview, you can just simply say something like, well, I went on a retreat with Lee Brasington and I, uh, I'm using the jhanas to concentrate my mind uh, and then I start doing the insight practice that you're teaching on this retreat and then start asking questions about the insight practice. <laughs> and then they're usually fine. But if you go in and say, can I do jhanas? They'll probably say no. Right. So if you just go in, it's like obvious that this is a good thing and you're doing it, that's fine. But you're not going to get much help from most teachers. Now, both Heather and Mary yeah, teach jhana, so they know about it. So if you have jhana questions on one of their retreats, yeah, it's not going to be a problem at all. They'll, they'll be very supportive. But a random Vipassana teacher, maybe not. Your second question? So... I've been thinking a lot about the experience and experiencer, uh -huh. and it seems like just a turn of grammar with the meals by saying, it's not I'm taking the breath, it's the breath is taken. Yeah, yeah. Your, your high school English teacher told you not to use the passive voice. Your Buddhist teacher says, use the passive voice. <laughs> <laughs> However, even when you say the breath is taken, in the back of your mind, there is, yeah, and I took it. <laughs> right? Really far away. Yeah, and the more you can look at the world in the passive voice, walking to the dining hall was done, uh, the meal was eaten. Uh, this is, can be helpful, but you don't want to go too overboard. There was one of the early translators, or bringers of Buddhism to England that begins speaking of himself in the third person. And so he would say to his wife, it is hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and 
as Ajahn Amaro said, I don't know if that guy was a saint, but his wife sure was. <laughs> so it can be helpful to think about it in the yeah in the passive voice there, but it's not going to get you all the way there because something's going to happen and you're going to latch onto it with scraping and clinging and thinking of it's me who's going to get it or me who's going to get it away, and. Uh, but you can do that as a practice. Just experience the world as just things are happening as opposed to I'm doing. Then it, it would be helpful. I seem to help in the jhana practice when I say um, uh, concentration can be had. It's, yes. can be had and happiness can be had. So it's there. Right. So I can feel it rather than it's mine. I've got to get it yeah. or anything else. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What's your favorite insight practice? My favorite insight practice is a Tibetan practice of Dzogchen. Okay, so an open awareness practice. So basically it's the Bahia practice. Uh, done. I learned, I learned the Bahia practice from the Tibetans. It was only later I realized, oh yeah, the Buddha taught this. So, uh, yeah. That was Tuli pointing out himself. What? That was Tuli pointing out himself. Well, yeah, I learned it, the Dzogchen uh, practice from a Tibetan teacher who gave what they call the pointing out instructions. It, it basically was what the Buddha was giving to Bahia. Yeah. Do you have any good teachers that you can recommend on the Dzogchen? I don't know anyone who specializes in it. Uh, most teachers I know who teach it talk about Bahia being a shipwrecked sailor. <laughs> so maybe they didn't get the full import of what the Buddha was doing. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sutta that people like, but I, I've never heard anybody else teach it regularly. What was the Tibetan Go to my website, you click on the Buddha, and then there's uh, a link to Sokni Rinpoche. And you click on that, and he's, that's who I learned it from. And uh, he has an organization, and they put on retreats and so forth, and he was interested. Do you have any recommendations on doing self-retreats? Um, so every, periodically I have a day or two days I can carve out. And I can't go away, but I, I can create space. And how would you design that to get the most out of that time? The most important thing, a schedule. Write it down. Don't just like try and wing it. So decide, okay, I'm going to get up at this time. I'm going to sit, sit before breakfast. And I'm going to allocate this hour or hour and a half to breakfast and chores and whatever. And then I'm going to sit and then we'll walk, and you know, it's just make up a schedule that you're going to do it. And this is lunch, and uh, yeah, just the things that you have to do during that day, do them after the meals, you know, if you've got to do the laundry, yeah, um, so that you've, you've got it set up on your schedule. And then in the evening, after the evening meal, sit for 45 minutes to an hour, and then listen to a Dharma talk. That would be the way that I would do it. 
you want to turn off all your electronics. Uh, you know, you can put your phone on airplane mode, but you know, it doesn't ring. If you have a landline and an answer machine, if you can turn those so that you won't know about any calls coming in or anything. Yeah, don't turn on your computer for any reason or anything. I mean, if, if you're curious about something and you just want to look it up, wait till the day is over because <laughs> it's really easy to get distracted. So basically go electronics free with the schedule and uh, just plan out what seems to work for you based on other retreats you've been on and then have a Dharma talk uh, via an MP3 in the evening. Thank you. Um, I was going to ask two questions. Uh-huh. Uh, first of all, could you just go a little bit more about uh, like how the Dharma impacted your practice? And then, like you said, there were six years before that you were just doing insight, and then three months right after when you started your Dharma, that was just life changing, and then you spent a little bit of time with the first person. One month. Oh. <laughs> when I, okay, so I had been doing insight practice for six years, but, <coughs> so they were trying to teach me the Mahasi stuff, and uh, they said, note everything, but I remembered I came and say, note to the distraction, so I didn't like the noting, so if I didn't get distracted, I didn't have to note, so <laughs> I wasn't really doing insight practice, I was doing concentration practice. Uh, and I got some insights, I mean, definitely, but it was a lot of concentration practice and not really much that we would actually say, oh, that's an insight practice. And then I started stumbling into the first jhana, and so then it was like, okay, all right, I'm going to do that. And so I was pursuing the first jhana a lot, so again, a lot of concentration practice. And I would get in it, and I could hold it about 10 minutes, and I'd fall out, and it was like, well, what am I supposed to do next? And uh, so six years of that, a number of different teachers, uh, I got some insights, but nothing really that was that much life-changing. And then I go on this second jhana retreat with Ayakema that's five and a half weeks. And I finish learning the jhanas, and then she lets me play with the jhanas for a little bit to get good at them. And then she puts me to work doing insight practice post-jhana. And that, with the insights were coming, were just, yeah, that was life-changing. So it was like three weeks of this five-and-a-half-week retreat where run the jhanas to eight and then do the insight practices she was giving me. Primarily, the arising and passing practice. That was the one that really seemed to be the most profound. Uh, and the, the insights, <coughs> yeah, just kept going. And then later... I went to the Forest Refuge. So that was 1991. First time I went to the Forest Refuge was 2006 with Tao Auk. And then I was back for 20 out of 36 months, starting in the end of 08, over the next three years. And then you have another question? Oh, yeah. I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about Aya? Yeah, Aya came up with born in Berlin in 1923, the daughter of a Jewish banker. So she was 10 when Hitler came to power. When she was 15, her parents sent her on one of the 
kinder transport, the children that were shipped out of Germany, the last of the kinder transports. And she was shipped off to some relatives she had in Scotland. And she was there for, I guess, three years. That's where she learned her English. And then her parents escaped to Shanghai. And she joined them by taking a Japanese freighter from Scotland to India to Shanghai in 1941. This was before Pearl Harbor, but after the war had broken out. And they could have been sunk by either side, but they made it there safely. And she rejoined her parents, and she actually enjoyed the time in Shanghai, even though it was under Japanese occupation, until 1944, when the Japanese threw all Westerners in a concentration camp. Her father died there. Uh, she didn't get out till 1945, when the Americans came in at the end of the war. But there were so many refugees that she didn't actually get out of China until 1949. She came to California. Uh, she was married by then. She worked at the Bank of America as a teller in LA. And eventually, uh, she was living with her husband and two kids on an organic farm in Mexico. He was an engineer and he got a posting to Pakistan. I've forgotten what he was building, an aqueduct or a, a bridge or something. And so she and her husband and her son, her daughter was from her first husband and the daughter apparently stayed with the first husband. And then, so her second husband and I and her son went to Pakistan, were there for, I don't know, six months or something. This is uh, 1960, and then they drove to London from Pakistan in their Land Rover. And on the way, they went up to visit the Hunza people. She was friends with the king of the Hunzas. And, uh, and then when they got ready to leave London, they drove back to India. So this is before the hippies were doing this, you know, in the buses and everything in the 70s. Uh, she was one of the pioneers of that route. When they got back to India, she wanted to learn something about meditation, and she studied with, well, the forgotten the name who the Hindu saint was. He had died, but his mother was still alive, and she was running the ashram. And that's where she learned meditation. And then she, her family moved to Queensland, Australia, to an organic farm. And they did that, I think, for six years. And she was doing this Hindu meditation. And she said she did it, but she never really connected with it. And then one day, one of the neighbors comes over and says, would you like to hear a talk by a Buddhist monk? He's giving a talk at my house tonight or whatever. And she was just like, oh, yeah. And so she went along, and she instantly knew this was her path. Uh, the monk was uh, Venerable Kanti Palo. Uh, he was an uh, English monk who basically was a conscientious objector in the Second World War. They drafted him, but they sent him to Sri Lanka, where he, he said, I'm not killing anybody, and they sent him to Sri Lanka. He spent the Second World War being a gardener, I think, and became a monk. A uh, very, very interesting guy. I actually got to meet him uh, at some, uh, in 1991 when he came to where that retreat was I spoke of earlier. 
So Aya began studying with him, going on retreats with him, and it was on those retreats that she taught herself the jhanas. And then she began going to Sri Lanka, and eventually she came back to, from her retreat, and her son met her at the railway station with a note from her husband. And the note said, uh, you are more interested in this meditation than me. I'm out of here. And he left. And she was rather upset about that at first, but then she realized, yeah, he was probably correct. <laughs> so eventually she decided to become a nun. So she got uh, ordination in Sri Lanka. Now at that time, you could only get, a, a woman could only get 10 precept ordination. So a novice nun. So she became a novice nun in Sri Lanka. And then she went to L.A. to the Chan Temple, the Chinese Zen Temple there, and got full ordination in the Chinese Chan lineage, which actually goes back to Sri Lanka. So uh, it made her a fully ordained nun, and she then went back to being a fully ordained Theravada nun, the first one in a thousand years, because the uh, lineage of fully ordained Theravada nuns had died out a thousand years earlier. Uh, she continued teaching in Australia and Sri Lanka. She was teaching a retreat in Bali and met some Germans, and they invited her to come to Germany. She hadn't been in Germany since she left when she was 15. And she said she accepted, and she said on the plane ride to Germany, she's with a poly-German dictionary, looking up the Pali words, what do the Germans call sati? Mindfulness in English, but she didn't know the German word for sati. And she's trying to learn German Pali so she can teach this retreat. And the students in Germany really liked what she was doing, and they founded uh, a retreat center, which is still going, called Buddha House. It's uh, near Kempton, which is about an hour and a half train ride west and a bit south of Munich. It's in Bavaria, and I've been there, I've talked there a couple times. Uh, and that was where she lived. She would go to Australia pretty much every year to visit her son, who was still living in Queensland, and go to San Diego, where her daughter was living. And it was when she would come to San Diego where I met her. She was also given uh, a, minus, an, a nunnery on an island in Sri Lanka at one point. And so she ran a nunnery for Western women who wanted to come on a three-month course in Sri Lanka. Uh, they didn't have to ordain. There were a few nuns there, uh, but they would come and be lay practitioners at this nunnery on an island in Sri Lanka. But it was when the Civil War in Sri Lanka got so bad, not that she was threatened, although they could hear gunfire, but you couldn't send a letter, you couldn't take a bus ride, that she decided to move back to Germany to this retreat center that her students founded for, and that's where she lived the rest of her life, with visits to Australia and visits to San Diego. And when she came to San Diego, she would teach in California or New Mexico, which is where I encountered her in, in California. And uh, a very amazing life. She has an autobiography called I Give You My Life, a very fascinating read. Uh, when I was reading it, I was 49 years old, and when I got to the point in the book where she was 49 years old, I go, my 
God, I've led a boring life. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around the world a couple times by then. I mean, compared to her, it was nothing. And so this book is this incredible adventure, you know, with all these nuggets of Dharma sprinkled through it. So definitely, highly recommend it. Book. go back and forth with Aya about reincarnation. You mentioned that she... <laughs> <laughs> you did not go back <laughs> So when I first came to Buddhism, uh, yeah, it was like, oh, yeah, rebirth, reincarnation, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure, but yeah, uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> so, it was there as a possibility, uh, but I wasn't really sure. It was sort of like, sort of like you can almost believe, but you're not quite there. And I guess that's where I was for a while, and pretty much where I was while I was associated with Ayakema. And, you know, the, the few occasions where I pushed back against something that she said, I quickly learned that, yeah, it really wasn't worth doing. I mean, these were very minor things, not like what happens after death. I mean, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she, she was not someone who would be a good teacher for you if you had problem with authority figures. When you go on retreat with her, she's the authority figure, and if you'll do what she tells you to do, just, yes, ma'am, I'll go do that right away, uh, you would have very good results. But if you want to do your own thing or question her or so forth, it just really didn't go well. She was very German and she was very Jewish. And it was a wonderful combination. We lost a lot of really amazing people in the second half. Um, at what point did I encounter Tibetan Buddhism? So that first retreat with Ayakema was in June of 85. At some point that spring, no, the first point was at New Year's, I went back to see my college buddies in Northwest Arkansas, and some of them were Tibetan practitioners. One of them handed me Trumpa's book, Shambhala, and said, read this book. So I read the book, and then he said, okay, you gotta meditate now. I was like, it's so boring. And he says, what did Trumpa tell you? Okay. <laughs> so I was sort of playing around with Tibetan Buddhism then. And then one night in the spring, I had a dream. And the dream consisted of the two words in a loud voice, Tantric Yoga. And I woke up and was like, what's that? So I went to the Green Apple Bookstore, which is mm -hmm. this fantastic used bookstore. It's about uh, six blocks from where I was living in San Francisco. And I bought every book they had in the bookstore with the word Tantra in the title, all two of them. <laughs> and one of them I could read a little bit of it, and one of them I could make heads or tails of it. Uh, but I also happened to buy Houston Smith's 
the religions of man. I had encountered Houston Smith when I was a freshman in college. He was invited by the Phi Beta Kappa chapter to come and give a series of lectures, and he was really interesting. And so, yeah, okay, I know this guy. So I read that, and I could definitely see I was more interested in Buddhism than any of the other religions he talked about. And then I go on the retreat with Aya, and then I start reading a lot of Dharma books, and a number of them were Tibetan books, but I uh, wasn't doing any Tibetan practice, just what I had learned from my Ayatunga. And I didn't really start doing any Tibetan practice until uh, 1992, uh, when I went to James Ferris's Thursday night class, and he wasn't there when I arrived. And when he rang the bell at the end of the sitting, he had arrived with a Tibetan Lama. He's like, oh, cool, we have a Tibetan Lama. And it's Sobhya Rinpoche. And he gives the pointing out as well. He speaks for 10 minutes describing the Dzogchen practice. He says, and now we're going to do this. And I'm like, there's nobody in the room can do this. But I found I could. Because I had enough stability of mind from, uh, at this point, three years of jhana practice. So I found I could. So then I started studying with him. So really seriously, it was 1992. After what, seven years of Theravada uh, practice. Still steady with him, you know. I haven't been on a retreat with him in a while, but yeah. Uh, so, some in some inside practice, you only need to be aware of what's going on, right? But for some inside practice, like the contemplation, you there is a storyline that you kind of right, exactly. Yeah, sometimes it's just observing, and sometimes it's thinking about it. yeah. yeah. And it's actually good to do both of them. Uh, if somebody were to say, all right, you can only do one, which one? I'm not sure I could pick, because I've gotten such benefit from both the contemplations where I'm thinking, have the storyline, and from just observing. So uh, they're, they're both quite valuable. about dreams of dependently arising processes interacting. Yeah. And I noticed that when you talked about them in relationship to <coughs> me or you or yeah. you use the term intersection, I think. I am the intersection of a bunch of those interacting right. streams. So is it slipping into um, selfing if you think of yourself as a stream? If you think of yourself as a stream, yes, that's a mistake. You are a bunch of streams. <laughs> right. Okay, there's lots and lots of streams. And there's coming. not like a major one that's more or less <laughs> you. It's really just. There, some of the streams have more influence than others. Uh, the streams of your family of origin have probably more influence than who you went to kindergarten with. Okay. Uh, 
So there, there's varying amounts of impact and how much volume there is coming from certain streams in the part. But there's not one of those streams that's neat. And at the intersection point, that intersection point, which I call me, is putting out streams. So I've been putting out streams, hopefully, of Dharma for the last two weeks. But sometimes I put out streams of nonsense. Maybe I did some of that, too. Uh, sometimes I put out streams of uh, going hiking in nature with my friends and what that entails. And sometimes I put out streams of buying an electric car and being, telling everybody, get an electric car, you're stupid if you have one of those stinking gasoline cars. <laughs> and there's that stream. And <laughs> so there's a lots of streams that go out there. There's the political stream, there's the, yeah, the photography stream, the, yeah. So, Lots of streams coming in, they intersect, and not as many streams going out, but multiple streams going out. Which, of course, impacts, I mean, you all got caught in my streams from being the teacher up here. I got caught in all of your streams from you coming and doing your interviews and asking your questions and being on the retreat. I'll get caught in some of your streams of how you make your living when you write out a check of Dhamma, right? <laughs> yeah, you can't possibly. Somebody wants to ask, how many streams are there impacting you at one point? I said, the number does not have a name. <laughs> so you've used the word unfolding? Yes. And I've been playing with that word a lot, and it, to me, like if something is unfolding, it kind of implies first that there's something to unfold, and that it's becoming simpler or more open, whereas it sounds like with all the, the streams that it's becoming more and more complex. So, okay, when I say unfolding, it's really the universe is unfolding, but when I say the universe, that's actually not necessary because it's all verbs, mm -hmm. right? So that you want a, a thing unfolding, it's the universe that's unfolding. As it unfolds, it actually becomes simpler. This is what entropy is about. Things tend to go from order to disorder, okay? So when it unfolds, as it unfolds, it's actually on the greatest scale going into uh, simplifying. The average temperature of the universe now is about four degrees above absolute zero. When the Big Bang went off, it was really hot. Okay, and it's cooled down over this time. But there are pockets of negentropy. Think of them as eddies in the current of entropy. I'm negentropy, you're negentropy. So we're eddies in the current of this unfolding that's going for simpler and simpler. Okay? The eddies can, can exist if they subsist on some of the entropy. Okay? So for you to keep living, you have to take some of the other negentropy out there, right? Like the corn, that corn that's growing is also 
make entropy, and then you make it go back to entropy by eating it and take the energy out of it, which allows you to keep uh, existing. So you take other eddies of negentropy and convert them into energy so you can sustain your negentropy in this huge stream of entropy that's going on. But <laughs> after about somewhere on the order of a hundred years, your negentropy runs out and you get to do the entropy thing. It's called death. Right? So the eddies don't go back all that far. They go back, you know, for people about a hundred years max. And then, yeah, it just gets caught in the flow of the unfolding. So most of the unfolding is going in the entropy direction, but there are bits and pieces of it going in the negentropy direction. And some of that impacts you both the entropy and the negentropy. Seven minutes until lunch. Walk slow. <laughs> Any suggestions on how to use the rest of the time of the retreat? Yeah, what I was going to say is silence is still in force. <clears throat> Keep the silence. If you've ever had trouble adjusting going back out to the unreal world, I would suggest backing off on the concentration of <coughs> Back off to just doing insight practice. Okay, don't try and crank the concentration up really high. If you've never had problem leaving a retreat, yeah. Or if you've left a jhana retreat and never had problems, then you can keep playing with the jhanas. But it's going to seem really weird out there. This is because it's really weird. <laughs> okay, you've been you've been place of sanity. You haven't been in sanity. You've been in a place of sanity. And it's, yeah, you know, I've checked the news. It's just as insane as it was when we came here. It didn't all get cleared up. So, uh, yeah, you might want to start backing off. Maybe you go for a longer walk this afternoon or something like that. Um, and if you don't push the envelope quite as hard, just you know, come back a little bit more. Donna for Lee gets made to lead Raisington oh, okay. uh, for Tri-State Dharma to Tri-State Dharma. Oakwood would be Oakwood Retreat Center or just Oakwood. And if you want to do staff gratuity as a check, make the check to Oakwood and on the little memo line put staff. Another handout. I was just going to ask to make, who to make the check yeah. for you to right. return to. Yeah, I'm not tax deductible, sorry. <laughs> no. Okay. Enjoy your lunch.